Hello, and welcome back to the Product Launch Podcast. As always, I'm the host, Sean Boyce. I would like to welcome my guest today, Howard Yermish. Howard is the Director of Product at Internet Creations, which is a Salesforce app exchange and consulting partner that empowers organizations to operate efficiently and accelerate success by aligning people with technology. Hello, Howard. How are you? And thanks for being on the show. I am great, Sean. Thanks for having me on the show. I like shows. And so being on a show makes me really, really happy. Uh, great to be here. Awesome. Well, we're excited to have somebody with your caliber and experience on the show to talk about a topic that we're excited about today. But before we kind of get into that, if you could, for our audience, please give them a little bit more information about your background and how you came to be doing the work that you're doing today. My background is bizarre. And I like to think about it as I tried it like crazy to not go into technology. My father was a computer scientist. I was, when I was four years old, I was programming computers that were the sizes of refrigerators in different rooms on green screens. And no one ever told me it was hard, so I just did it. And it was fun, and I liked it. And because I was a really, really smart kid, I went to music school. And I went to music school as a composer and loved it. But all along the way, as I was in undergrad as a composer and graduate school as a composer, I kept finding myself doing these side jobs in technology. Uh, they started out just as basic IT, it moved into web development, it moved into usability testing in web development. Next thing I knew, um, I was leaving my doctoral degree at USC and doing web development and some software development and app specification and usability as a career. And I was like, what happened? I went to music school. Um, but I actually think that that music school background really set me up for doing the work that I'm doing now. Uh, for a, a lot of the reason is this whole concept that I described to the people on my team is zooming in and zooming out. You have to be able to look at all of the meticulous little details. I describe it as if the flute needs to play loudly at measure 18, you need to know that the, the flutist is going to have time to pick up the flute and be ready to play loudly. So that's a really meticulous little detail, but it's a 30 minute piece that's got all of these different things. And if you can't think of the whole piece, you won't understand, is that flutist in a good position to play beautifully in that moment? Or are they exhausted because they've been playing for 20 and 30 minutes? Product development is like writing a symphony. You have to know how to write all of the meticulous little details, but you have to know how they fit together to make a, a, just a beautiful piece of music. And that's, it's something that it's very rewarding because I have to tell you, music is not a lucrative profession unless you happen to be Beyonce. And last I checked, I am not Beyonce. Not yet, at least, but I think you have the not voice yet. for it. <laughs> <laughs> I love that analogy. Uh, makes me feel proud of the work that we do. Yes. Working on product development is like writing a symphony. So It really is. Very, uh, very eloquent, I should say. Awesome. Well, thank you for talking more kind of about your background. And uh, to introduce the topic that we wanted to talk about today is related to the pandemic, as most things are these days. Symphony. And it's really, you know, how to conduct and how to be and continue to be an exceptional product professional, given the nature of the limitations presented by the pandemic, namely that a lot of our work has to be done remotely now, whereas previously, you know, product people like you and I, we love to geek out up on that whiteboard in front of our team and hammer things out together. Um, we were in close proximity and working together in a regular fashion, but nowadays that's been significantly disrupted. So um, if you would give us a little bit more background here about how the nature of the landscape has changed for you and what that's meant for the work that you've done, and then we'll kind of dive into the topic further. Yeah, the whiteboard is a really great analogy for this because at my desk in the office at Internet Creations, 
I have a double-sided whiteboard that sort of sits so that I have my side on one side and the side that faces out to everybody on the other side. And I regularly put problems that we were working on that we needed to all sort of think about and solve. And it was this visual reminder of this is the problem that we are thinking about. So people would walk by and say, oh, what is that for? And I would say, oh, it's for this product. Oh, what would that do? And then all of a sudden there's a conversation which allows us to get another perspective, to hear it at a different time of day, all of this stuff. And that was just so crucial to inspiring these great conversations, whether it was with our support team, with a product manager, with UX design, with the developers that would come by. Uh, we would joke that those whiteboards were kind of like our way of, of saying, this is what I need you to think and help me with. And they just aren't here. I have a whiteboard that's on my wall right here that I use a lot the same way. But people on my support team are not just strolling by my desk. They're not going to randomly see that. The product managers aren't going to randomly see that. They have their whiteboards. I'm not going to see what their problems are struggling with or the R&D team. So we've had to kind of figure out how do we make that happen in different ways. I am very, as a manager and as a product leader, I'm very old school. I very much do, uh, Salesforce has a concept, uh, one of the admins talks about management by walking around. And that is something that I just loved. It was just how I did things. Seeing people work, coming over, what's going on, just quick check-in. It's amazing that someone who wasn't willing to come to you and say, I have a question about the product or a customer asked about this feature, that I was there. Me walking, strolling through that office, someone on the sales team, someone on the marketing team, the fact that I just showed up and said, hey, what's going on today? And they're like, you know what? I just talked to a customer about this thing. And I'm like, did you? When was that? Well, three days ago. Well, you had three days to come walk by my desk. And I walked around and saw you. That is not there. So we have had so many things to try to say, okay, Zoom meetings. Go to, we use GoToMeeting, uh, whatever, whatever platform that is the chat. Um, it's just not the great replacement. One of the things that really impacts great collaboration is the, it's really the delay, that little bit of lag time. If you work on listening and collaboration, you don't want to have someone talking over someone else, but you're never sure when someone is done. It's a great point. I think you've articulated it really well too. I've experienced it constantly and it, it's definitely frustrating on these, these virtual calls where there's definitely a fine line in terms of how many people are even on the call, but then who wants to say something but isn't and trying to figure that out. Someone's running with a thought and it gets interrupted by something else and it is incomplete. That I, I totally agree. And in, in an in-person situation, it you get to kind of run, chase all those things down. But when operating remotely, it seems there's a different, it's just a sequence that plays out um, in terms of people interacting with one another. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about what you what you are inspiring your team to do at Internet Creations given these limitations and how they can continue to be productive, given the fact that they're unable to kind of uh, pull on the same effective strategies they used before when they were able to work uh, more consistently in person. Absolutely. So the, I think the first thing that everybody did, not just us, was tell everyone to turn on the webcams. Like, hey, we miss you. We're not seeing each other. Turn on the webcams. And I can tell you, uh, some of my team expressed this to me. 
it certainly happened to me very, very quickly. I was on a webcam for six to eight hours a day. A light was on, I'm looking at the camera. That means I might be really sensitive to typing loudly on the keyboard because it's showing up. I have to kind of like focus in a way with a camera that was not my job before. And when you're in a room and you've got a few people, it's so easy to see this person's tired or this person's got an idea and they're just like chomping at the bit to do something. Now you're on this webcam and everyone's just like glazed over and like, I got to stare at this thing and they're afraid. And if they do something and, and then they don't realize that they're muted and it, it's just, it becomes this very awkward thing and it is exhausting. And so I didn't want to say to my team, Hey, turn off the webcams. It's not helping anyone, but I've given my team permission to say like, Hey, um, I'm tired. I can't do the webcam right now. And so at the start of a meeting, I will sometimes say to my team as just to try to model the behavior, I've been on the webcam for the last three hours. I'm going to be off webcams right now. You guys can leave yours on. It's fine if that's fine for you. But if you need to be off, that's okay. And one of the things that we've started to try to do, um, I did it almost as a joke at the, at the very beginning of this. Um, I was like, I was on these webcams and all those situations where like I had a question or I wanted to get, you know, a word in, but I didn't want to interrupt someone. I started doing things like writing a little note card that would say things. So for example, I have a, a fun little note card that says big green checkbox. And that was sort of like someone would suggest a product feature and they're like, is there any way that in this product we could have like just some kind of big checkbox? And so sometimes as the conversation would be going on between one person and another, a third person would start doing things like either raising their hand and like I would put their hand up saying, I've got something to say. And I started doing that and my team just followed with that. They would hold up a note card that might be like, uh, like there might be a note card with a question mark on it, or there might be a note card that's like, uh, that would say thumbs up. I have a note card that says thumbs up. So if you like something, instead of saying, oh, I love that and interrupting the flow, the note card was this visual way for people to say, oh, you don't have to just sit there awkwardly and nod all the time. You can actually say, you can express yourself very quietly. This little note card thing has become sort of, um, I don't want to say it's been my thing, but at the company, everyone's like, what note cards did you bring? Because they know that I always have them. Um, some people on my team, they go with the raising the hand. That was, that's what works for them. But any way that you can find your personality in this virtual recording structure, I think is really going to help because it is awkward. It isn't natural. Like there's a reason why when people get media training to be comfortable in front of a television camera, that that separates them from the normal person on the street who's like, you know, not used to it. Well, that's what everyone's doing. And none of us have media training. We all just flicked on the webcams and went, go, good luck with your job. Not to mention, like, I'm in my home. Very close by is a cat down there. And the cat may want to, like, come by and say hello. Well, I'm trying to be professional. But I'm at home as is everybody else. So I've kind of let my team know that it's okay if you're talking with a customer. If home interrupts, they're home too. Give them permission to just be comfortable with this weirdness. I think that's a great way to think about it. And you're right. I, I don't think I had thought about that previously where none of us were really properly trained or had received that much in terms of training. 
about how to be effective communicators when it's being done 100% remotely. Like you said, just flip on the webcam and kind of figure it out. And some of us may have fared better than others, but there's a lot of fatigue out there. Communication effectiveness is taking a serious hit. So I think the, and what you mentioned with that, like finding your personality when communicating remotely is important for a couple of reasons. And I love the figuring out the strategies of what interacting with each other within the team looks like in ways in which it can be more effective. Like you said, like raising the hands and sharing note cards and stuff like that. I think that's a great way to keep it more engaging too. Because one of the problems I notice is when teams are on, you know, webcam, if they're not running the meeting or specifically talking in the moment, it seems like it's way easier for people to disconnect. I mean, like you said, distractions uh, as a minimum, but that it's, you know, people aren't in front of you. So just being present but oven, oven in itself is a challenge. So that's also why I like what you mentioned is like turn on the webcam, right? Like have your web camera on, be present uh, as much as you possibly can. And then all those other suggestions that you made too would make it more likely even more engaging. The other challenge in this uh, collaborative space is part of my job as, as director of a team is to grow the people on my team. And I have people on my team that are very introverted. This webcam experience is very difficult for them. And it's hard enough to get them to speak up about their ideas and defend their ideas when we're in a conference room or when we're just sitting around and there's a beanbag next to my desk that people can sit in and we're all sort of chatting and stuff like that. That, that concept is really, really hard. And I have to be like super duper careful about it so that like there's a member of my team, I can tell you uh, she's very introverted and she is brilliant. But this way of collaborating is really hard. So she and I will often talk in advance of the meeting about some of the things that she might want to talk about. And so I'll say, okay, at a certain point, if it's hard, if you feel like you can't get a word in edgewise, I'll, I'll say something, be ready. And so just talking a little bit in advance to the introverts to let them know that it's important for me that they get heard and they get heard from them. And it's not, you know, like if, if two of the people talk in advance and one of them is less and one of them's an extrovert and the other's an introvert and the extrovert then spits out the idea, the introvert felt like they didn't get whether it was credit or they didn't feel like their idea was exactly expressed. So they might say, oh, I don't have anything else to add, but it was their idea and they had everything to add, but they just don't want to, um, it's a weird, it's a weird medium. They just aren't comfortable speaking out. And so, you know, really managing the team, it's been just super duper hard to make sure that everyone's voice is, is getting heard and getting heard in a way that fosters collaboration and not just my idea, your idea, who gets credit for it, but making sure the conversations are moving forward and they don't sort of have these awkward stops and, well, what do you mean by that? And people get questioned. Um, I think a lot of the work that we did on listening skills long before the pandemic, and we really focused on generous listening skills. We, we, we have a fundamental at Internet Creations um, that is, uh, it's all about active listening and listen, really listening to uh, find the why and to really walk in someone else's shoes, to really understand the context. Um, core to product management, it's not just an Internet Creations thing, obviously. But because we so focused on that listening skill, with the lag, 
we kind of take the approach that says, hey, we used to talk about the awkward silences, like create an awkward silence and let someone fill it. That's very different than, oh, my turn, my turn, my turn. Let me wait to the last word and then go, boom, my idea comes right at the end of that. And when everyone on, on my team is being generous, the lag kind of is okay because we're all putting in that space. Yeah, there's a ton there to kind of extract and for other people to experiment with. I think these are all excellent ideas. I can tell you know, you're well-versed in this and that you've engineered the, the right strategy for your team. I also particularly like the paying close attention to your team members in terms of, right, especially if you had the opportunity to work with them and experience how they interact in person and see how that's changed given the nature of the fact that everything's done remotely now to stay on top of that. So that's, that's definitely effective product leadership right there, right? Where you're still giving them a voice in which they feel comfortable and then making adjustments along the way to make sure everybody is heard and you're getting that kind of collaboration, right? Because just because of your personality, you don't want the, um, you don't want someone's personality or level of discomfort with how things have changed in terms of communication in the short term to affect the quality of what the team as a whole is able to produce. So important to pay close attention to that too. Um, excellent ideas. So this is fantastic. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about the work that you do and you and your team at Internet Creations. I think it's a really interesting dynamic within product of in itself that uh, for those out there that are expected to be doing similar work or those that are less experienced in product. I'd love for them to know a little bit more about your world that way and talk about some of the interesting dynamics when it comes to managing a product like the one that you guys have and like the products that you guys have. So if you could give for us, uh, the listeners kind of an overall from internet creations perspective, right? The whole, you know, product living inside a, a larger product kind of description so that everybody knows what that means. So Salesforce is a giant technology platform. And one of the things that this giant technology platform did was they created a app ecosystem. So what does that mean? That means third-party developers like us, internet creations, there's tons of them. Um, some of them write products just for, for uh, Salesforce. Some of them write products for all the different platforms. So if you think about a product like DocuSign, DocuSign is a standalone piece of technology that integrates with lots of different things. And one of the products they integrate with is Salesforce. Along with uh, what they do, that integration piece is, um, it's very much, it's their platform and they integrate with Salesforce. Well, what Salesforce also lets you do is create native products. And what that means is the product that we are creating actually runs inside of the Salesforce platform itself. So that comes with a lot of benefits and a lot of challenges. Um, for example, we don't have servers that our products are running on. So when someone says, hey, the server's down, I laugh and I go, well, it's clearly not us because we don't have them. Our products are literally running on the Salesforce platform. If Salesforce is down, so are we because it won't work without Salesforce. If Salesforce is working, we are probably working. If we're not, I've never seen this where our products aren't working because Salesforce is working. 
Um, I've seen some weird things where Salesforce introduces a bug that we then have to go fix, but I certainly haven't seen any kind of uh, strange things where it's like, well, Salesforce is up, but our products aren't working. It's, it's just not the case. What that also means for writing these native products, I don't know if you've ever had to fill out those security questionnaires that talk about where you store data and how data lives at rest. Um, I actually have an answer that I fill into all of those that is C, trust.salesforce.com because it just doesn't apply to us. We aren't housing any data. Now, what does that mean? So, okay, we've got development on the platform. We don't house your data. Well, guess what we don't have access to? We don't have access to our customers' data. We don't. So when we think about how do we manage a product, we have these challenges of we want it to work perfectly on the Salesforce platform. So we have to know everything about the platform, what their roadmap looks like, all kinds of different things that way. But we also have to know okay, we don't have signifiers as to what our customers are doing because Salesforce doesn't give access to, our, to customer data. So when DocuSign says, ah, I wonder if this feature is working really well. Well, how do they check it? They look at every single customer and they can say, these customers are exactly using this feature. Well, I can't see what my customers are doing in any kind of direct way. That means... Well, that means I don't have to worry about privacy. I just can't see it. But it also means I can't see it. I'm working in the dark. We, we have different challenges to know, is this feature working? Are customers adopting it? How do we know that just, it, it makes planning and producing a product uh, <laughs> really challenging and you have to have a lot of good instincts. And with what little data you can garner, you have to be able to connect the dots and say, okay, well, we think this is meaningful. It's such a fascinating topic. It's, it's like a, a subworld within product itself, right? And there's all these unique characteristics of managing product, a product or products in an environment like this, where you said building them inherently native. Probably the, one, of the, one of the more significant questions that I have and one of the trickier things to figure out when you know, managing products like that are figuring out what that balance is between creating the optimal user experience and still maintaining a brand that is unique to your organization, right? So it's almost like, you know, um, value generation versus credit, if you will, for all of the, the great work that you've done. We've had conversations where you've told me that in um, with you've getting you, you and your team have gotten feedback such that people think people don't even realize sometimes where you know, Salesforce product ends and where your product begins, which I think in some ways is like the ultimate compliment, but at the same time presents another unique challenge where that, you know, those lines are a little bit blurred. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about this dynamic in the, in, in your world and how you balance that, you know, optimal user experience with brand recognition. So a lot of it comes from, uh, you start with, it's not just that you start with the problem, but you're looking at what are the outcomes that someone's trying to get to. And we know that our customers are using Salesforce. So we actually get a really good picture of, okay, I'm using this platform to solve this problem. The tools that Salesforce provides do these things. So the moment they try to solve something that Salesforce doesn't do well, what we want our products to do is to simply, in a very frictionless way, let them solve those problems without them realizing, oh, I'm now going to this product to do this thing. So most of our products are for support teams. 
So if I think about it this way, when a new support case, Salesforce uses cases to represent uh, support tickets or uh, support work to do. When a new case is created, a, someone on the support team needs to know which case to pick up. They then need to know what's going on, what's happening with the customer, what's the data around that, and then they have to go do things with it. So Salesforce does some of that, and our products do other parts of that. If the customer thinks they're using one of our products' case flags, oh, I have to go look at case flags to figure out which, which case to do, then I feel like we're a little too heavy-handed, that our interface is a little too overwhelming. So rather than creating something that says, go to Mr. Case Flags product screen and do a thing, what I want to do is I want to use a Salesforce technology, which they give you these little utility bar components, where in the utility bar, there's a little tab and you, you tap it and then a little screen pops up. Great. Well, then all of your cases are in priority order. And it's got the case number and the status and a description and a subject and all the stuff that you would find just on a typical case. And it's in an order. Well, why is it in that order? Well, because our product puts it in an order that says the highest priority should be at the top and then you work your way down. So all they do is they open up the little utility bar, click on a case, and then they're using that product. But they didn't think it's time to go do case flag stuff. And then they compose their comment. Oh, I need to send a, an email to a customer. Well, it turns out that our product email to case premium handles that communication back and forth so they can see a timeline. So they're not realizing that some of what they're looking at is just standard Salesforce and the other parts are our products as components inside of it. We have had the situation, as you alluded to, where a customer will say, I'm no longer renewing your product. I'm just going to use native Salesforce. And, they, and I say, oh, what's that going to look like? And then they describe to us how our product works. And then they show us our product. And then we say, just so you know, that thing where you're not going to use our product anymore, you're using our product to show me what you're not. You're just using native Salesforce functionality. That's actually us. So that's the compliment part. But then the challenge is, well, if they don't even know it's us, how would they even know that we might have more for them or that they might want to add more people to it? It is, it's sort of this really interesting balancing act between do we brand it so that it's like, oh, this is definitely native to Salesforce, but a little bit special. And that's something where a lot of what we've done in sort of a new design aesthetic that we've implemented is we want it to look completely at home, but we want to give it a little extra, whether it's character or slight color colorization, we want to just give it a little extra spice so that someone would say that's not native Salesforce, but it's acting like it. So they kind of just say, ah, there's something special here. That's kind of what we're going for. It's, a, it's, it's different in every product. Yeah, it's very cool. And I, I imagine it, it takes some serious chops to be able to know how to manage that fine balance. But at the same time, it, it's got to be really refreshing upon occasion to realize that the, in the experience that they're describing that they might even be taking for granted is, is the work, is all of the hard work that yourself and your team have been doing which in a lot of ways is, you know, an ultimate compliment, realistically. Uh, making, adding something to a product, especially when it's complicated as Salesforce, that really captures the essence of what a native experience is like is one of the most difficult things I, I have to imagine in product that you could probably accomplish. So it sounds like an, a, a significant compliment, but at the same time, I agree uh, when you're describing figuring out how to manage that dynamic because you want you need to maintain that, right? So... Uh, we need to be able to make sure that 
certain credit is due there because we want to also stay close to that audience to find out how we can continue that experience. I think the other challenge that we find um, really relates to, you know, Salesforce is a moving target, just like our pro all of our products are moving targets. We're always trying to innovate and do this. Salesforce is innovating and they're constantly either updating how they've solved the problem in the past or introducing new functionality. And, you know, what we want to do is like the old Wayne Gretzky quote, which is, I don't want, like, I want to skate to where the puck is going to be. And so we're always thinking about that triangulation where I look at what Salesforce is doing. I look at what they are announcing and Salesforce is notorious for at their major once a year Dreamforce event saying, this is what we're doing. And they do a demo and that will be available next fall. So in November, they'll say that'll be available next fall. So literally they're showing us stuff that's a year away. Well, from a product development standpoint, that's great. Like we get some lead time, but then they'll do stuff that's like, oh, we're going to take this feature and we're just going to do something different with like no announcement. And so all of a sudden a new feature will come out in one of their three times a year releases that we look at and we go, huh, that completely changes how we have to do security for our survey tool. Great. Okay. How do we change that? That's something where the whole security model had to be, I don't want to say rewritten, but we recently had to take some features away, which arguably, I don't know if we should have had in the first place, but because Salesforce said, in order to do security, this is how you have to do it. So we said, great, we used to make it flexible for our customers, it's no longer flexible. And we were able to deliver it in such a way so customers didn't have to do anything. We were able to do it because we were like, you don't have options anymore, this is the option off to the races. Um, but you know, that did create some controversy where they were like, well, I had already written my sharing model and how do I undo that? And what do I need to do? And we're like, just don't worry about it. If you wrote sharing model stuff, you can just eliminate all of it because we're not, we're, we're, we're completely, and if we said the word bypassing it, they're like, wait, is my data no longer protected? And I'm like, no, we are no longer giving you options because Salesforce has one way to do it. And that's the way. So if you want to fight with Salesforce, go fight with Salesforce. We're obeying. Skating to the puck is very, like skating to where that puck is going to be is very, very difficult. And I don't think we get it right all the time. We probably get it wrong more than we get it right. But we're, tr we're trying to do that triangulation. We're trying to kind of predict where they're going to be. Um, one of the things that we did uh, really three years ago, Salesforce started doing things on their platform. Uh, it's called Lightning, going from a classic platform, more static to a more Lightning platform, more dynamic. And they, they basically started talking about the way you should be interacting with Salesforce. Traditionally, in the classic environment, it was very much, here's the page, do things, click a button, and move on. And with Lightning, what they wanted was this very modular sort of Lego building approach, where you could do different things on the page, different components would be there, something would show up, you could interact with it, but it wasn't this edit a record, change the values, save a record approach. And that meant that we had to rethink, how did our products work? because some of our products were originally designed with Salesforce Classic. How do we solve that problem in Classic? Well, in Lightning, it's a different version of the problem to solve. And we can't just say, oh, we did it this way. Let's flip it. Let's do it another way. And we also have customers that are like, we love Classic. We don't want to go to Lightning. So we want to innovate in Lightning, but our customers are like, I'm not ready for it. So how do we keep delivering value in a way that allows us to just, you know, keep moving forward? but also we have to drag our customers with us sometimes because they're like, I don't want to go to classic. And we're like, you should go. Um, I'm actually a member of one of the Salesforce uh, programs called lightning champions where I work, I work with customers and I say, you should move to lightning. 
And our products, I'm like, we should move to Lightning. Like they're, we're doing the same kind of thing. Our products are all totally at home in Lightning now, but we still talk about like, well, what do we do for our customers that haven't moved yet? Do we leave them on the, on the road behind? Or do we say, look, like all the new stuff is over here. We want you to come along. But if you don't, you still have a lot of value in the product. It's a, and that's a very hard balance. And we, make, we have to make a decision every single time because supporting Classic at this point is much more difficult than it was two years ago. It's very hard to write in modern technologies that don't operate in Classic, but operate wicked fast in Lightning. So we, you know, we have to choose. That's absolutely fascinating. There's, uh, there's a whole world in there that I want to dive into with you. I think will probably be even better is let's set up another uh, opportunity to record and talk even more depth about that. And we can also do an update as well also, because I'd love to hear more about this dynamic from you. Uh, there's a ton more to kind of dive into. Uh, this time spent for this episode has been fantastic, Howard. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to share uh, your knowledge and insight with myself and our audience. I have two questions for you before I let you go. And the first one is, what resources, if any, would you share with our audience? So Salesforce is this amazing platform ecosystem, and they have this learning platform that is free for everyone on the planet called Trailhead. And on Trailhead, it is not just how to, how to do Salesforce things. They have courses on there that are everything from there's Drucker business fundamentals on there. There's product management approach. There's product management specifically for the Salesforce platform. There's so many things on there and it is free and they let you set up little private developer orgs to try stuff out. So if someone's like, I want to be a product manager on Salesforce, you don't have to have a, you don't have to pay a dime and you can learn everything you would want to know. And they do it on trailhead and it's amazing. And I like, they are literally giving away the technology, which if you're a Cisco person or a Microsoft person that has been like, oh, you want certification, you know, you need to spend thousands of dollars for, to access the learning materials and then other thousands of dollars for the certifications. Salesforce is like, here's Trailhead, go for it. And it's just amazing. So go to Trailhead, learn stuff. I think that would be, that would be great. For some of the things that I've written, um, we have a, Internet Creations has a blog. Some of my writings are on there. Um, there's some other resources in the ecosystem that I've written some articles on. Really the best place I would recommend people go if they want to, if they're interested in me, which honestly, I'm not that interesting, um, is my account on Twitter is hyermish, H-Y-E-R-M-I-S-H. Um, that's my Twitter account. I share stuff that's, whether it's blog articles or other things in uh, Salesforce ecosystem or very interesting pictures that I take along the way because I love photography and all things like that. So that would be where I would want to send people. Trailhead is a great resource. Our blog has some good writings and, you know, my Twitter account, go for it. If you, if you are so uh, deigned, if you do follow me on Twitter, please say hello because when people follow me, I tend not to like pay attention. Someone mentioning me, talking to me, oh, I heard you on this podcast. That was great. Say hello that way. I would love it. That's fantastic. Thank you for sharing those resources. Um, I will link to those in the notes. And then it sounds like Twitter is a great platform. But the last question that I have is who should reach out to you and how can they get in touch? So <clears throat> great question. Again, Twitter is probably the best way um, just to do an at mention or direct message. Um, I'm very easy to find on uh, LinkedIn. People message me through LinkedIn. Um, 
or you just go howard.yermish at internetcreations.com is my email address. It's again, not hard to find. Um, I sort of joke with a last name like Yermish. I am kind, like if you put in Howard Yermish, you're gonna find me and you'll find stuff and you're like, wait, he does what? Um, as, as I said, my road to here is very, very bizarre and I love that it's bizarre. It's actually some of the most fun that, you know, I can be a photographer, I can be a musician, but I can also manage a product and all of those fun things that I like to do translate into that. I'm a dad as well. I'm a friend and, you know, you know, an ally where I can be and I just... It's a, lot of, it's a lot of fun, and I like that uh, kaleidoscope. I think that's what makes the product work that I do better, is that I love embracing that kaleidoscope. Well, thank you for providing that information, Howard. I'll link to that in the notes as well, too. And thank you for being here and sharing your knowledge and experience with myself and our audience. Thank you, Sean. I really appreciate this opportunity. Um, it's, a, it's a pleasure. I look forward to talking to you again. You're very welcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Product Launch Podcast powered by Next Step. If you or anyone you know is involved in scaling a B2B SaaS business, please have them reach out to me about becoming a potential guest on our show. They can email me at sean at nextstep.io. That's S-E-A-N at N-X-T-S-T-E-P.io. This time, we'd like to take a moment to thank the sponsor of our show, Next Step Consulting. Would you like to know what the right next steps are for your B2B SaaS business? Are you trying to grow and scale, but you're stuck? We can help. To find out how Next Step can help your B2B SaaS business achieve its goals, please email me, sean at nextstep.io. That's S-E-A-N at N-X-T-S-T-E-P.io. Thanks and keep disrupting. Hey folks, Sean here, and thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you got a ton of value out of it. If you did, I'd encourage you to also sign up for my free five-day email course about launching a profitable B2B SaaS application for less than $750. If you'd like to sign up for that course, you can do so at nextstep.io forward slash B2B SaaS.